the clarity of scripture. Can only Bible scholars understand the scripture rightly? Sometimes people think, oh, the Bible, it's an impossible book to understand. It's mysterious. You have to have all these special tools and everything to understand it. And who can ever understand it? And you may maybe not even reading a right translation. And how do you know that the original said something that you, what do you think it is? How, can you ever understand it rightly? So this is the question that the doctrine of the clarity of scripture addresses. In older times, this was called the perspicuity of scripture. But I didn't think that perspicuity was a very perspicuous term. And so uh, I have renamed it and called it the clarity of scripture. Um, here's, we'll start out with a definition. The Old Testament and New Testament frequently affirm that scripture is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by ordinary believers. Able to be understood by ordinary believers, not just priests, not just scholars, not just highly technically trained people, not just people who read Greek and Hebrew, but ordinary believers. Able to be understood. So let's see where we find evidence for that. First, the Bible frequently affirms... How many people... Anybody need an outline? You should have an outline in your chair. Hold up your hand if you didn't get one. Outline like this, we're set. Okay. The Bible frequently affirms its own clarity. In the Old Testament, ordinary people were expected to be able to understand the words of Scripture. Think about this, a very famous passage in Deuteronomy 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, Moses says, to all the people. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Now, if the moms and dads were supposed to teach the words of Scripture to their children, what does that say about whether they could understand them? That means they could understand them, right? They, they in general, could understand them and they could explain them to their kids. And I think that, think that means even that the kids were expected at the, age, at the level appropriate to their age, that they were expected to be able to understand the words of Scripture. So they're written for ordinary people, and they're written for moms and dads to be able to explain it to their kids. And, uh, and that's why Moses can command the people to teach them to their children and talk to them during the day. Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Here's the um, example of a godly man that everybody's supposed to imitate. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. On his law he meditates day and night. Now, that isn't just this blessed man, goes on and talks about more that he does, and all that he does he prospers, etc. But this is the first psalm, and this psalm gives all of Israel a model that they are to imitate. So really, the psalm is saying, you all should be like this guy. Meditate on God's law day and night, delight in it. And that implies that everybody in Israel was supposed to be studying, pondering, reading the words of God. Psalm 19, verse 7, and Psalm 119, verse 130 give another perspective on this. They say, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, Making wise the simple. Psalm 119, verse 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Who are the simple? In Proverbs, in Psalms and Proverbs, the simple are people that are easily fooled, easily deceived, easily led astray. They just, 
you know, people can trick them, that kind of thing. And God's word says, even the simple are made wise by the word of God. That means you don't have to be a straight-A student to understand scripture. That means even if understanding some things in life, like maybe calculus or geometry or foreign language or something may have been hard for you, Scripture, you should be able to understand. It makes you wise. And if it makes the simple wise, then I suppose it should make all the rest of us wise. We should, the, the expectation is that we would be able to understand it. And whenever I read these verses, I think about two events that happened within two, three days of each other when Margaret and I were living in England and I was doing my doctoral study. Um, on, uh, on Sunday, I went and preached at a, at a rural church, and on Tuesday, I went to the New Testament seminar for PhD students in Cambridge. Now, this doctoral seminar in the Divinity Faculty Building, in the Lightfoot Room, sitting under the portrait of J.B. Lightfoot, this great 19th century Bible scholar and commentator, big long table, and all the professors of New Testament there at the University of Cambridge would sit around and talk, and the, and the graduate students, among whom I was one, would kind of sit and listen, and occasionally we'd volunteer hesitantly a, a little opinion or something. Um, but it was sort of an intimidating setting. And some of the professors had a lot of insight. I remember one year we were going through the Gospel of Mark, different passages in the Greek New Testament. Nobody, of course, would ever dare open an English Bible in the New Testament seminar. You'd use your Greek New Testament. We're going through the Greek New Testament in the Gospel of Mark. And some of the professors were pretty reasonable in their interpretations and had a lot of knowledge of Greek and the ancient history and things. And my own supervisor was quite uh, very responsible and reasonable. But there were one or two professors there in particular who would propound the most absurd, absurd bizarre theories of what a text would mean. And the stranger the theory, the more they seem to enjoy it. And you'd sit there and scratch your head saying, where did they get this idea? And some of them, I mean, if I would start saying, this is what this verse means in Mark, you'd kind of say, time for another cup of coffee, and then you'd kind of quietly slip out the back of the room, and you'd never, really, you'd never come back again. You'd say, this is so weird. But there they were. They had humongous knowledge of Greek and humongous knowledge of the ancient world. But they were living, walking, breathing proof of the fact that tremendous knowledge and common sense don't always occur in the same body. <laughs> then, um, then on a Sunday, my pastor at our church in Cambridge, Eden Baptist Church, our, our, my pastor said, Wayne, would you like to go out and preach at Great Wilbraham? Great Wilbraham is a, several miles out, out of the, into the English countryside. He said, uh, there's a little church out there. They, they don't meet on Sunday mornings because they can't afford a pastor. They meet on Sunday afternoons, and then they get pastors from the area to come and fill the pulpit. Would you like to go out there and preach? I said, sure. So I went out there and um, came into a rural kind of farm community, small town, and uh, met with the three deacons at this Baptist church. And they talked with me, they prayed with me before the sermon, and then I preached, and then afterward, uh, they met with me again, talked a little more, and the chairman of the deacon board gave me 18 eggs and thanked me for coming to preach. <laughs> now, um, 
when I got back to our own church the next week, I said, um, he said, how'd it go? I said, oh, it's great. And he said, you know, I said, I really like that chairman of the elder board. He was a farmer. He's the guy that gave me the eggs. But I just, I just appreciated his prayer so much. He had such a close walk with the Lord, I could tell. And afterward, he just asked me such really insightful questions about the sermon. And um, he was, you know, kind of a farmer in his early 50s, probably. And, um, and my pastor said, yes, do you know he only learned to read four or five years ago? But he said before he learned to read, he would preach at other little village churches. And here's what he would do. He would remember a Bible verse that had been meaningful to him. He'd find somebody who could read, who would read it to him again and again until he got fixed in his mind. Then he'd get on his bicycle, didn't have a car, and he'd ride to the other church and he'd preach on that sermon, on that verse. Isn't that interesting? And then it hit me. If I, if I had a problem in my marriage, if I had a problem just seeking godly counsel in some other area of life, would I go to the brilliant scholar who had the bizarre theories of interpretation? Or would I go to the deacon that just learned to read four or five years ago and was walking with the Lord and loved the word of God? No question in my mind. I go to the deacon who loved the Lord and who had been made wise by scripture. So the word of the Lord makes wise the simple. And I, when I... When I, uh, when I read this, I, I can't help but remember that, that story. So in the New Testament, we see the same thing. Jesus and the apostles have the same expectation. Jesus never believes people's confusion on the obscurity of Scripture. It, you know, people keep coming to Jesus and say, Teacher, what about this? Teacher, what about that? And, uh, you know, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Or all of these hard questions. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not, etc.? Jesus never said, I understand why you can't figure that out. This issue presents particularly complex hermeneutical difficulties, which scholars have not been able to resolve. He, he doesn't say that. He never blames their confusion on the Bible. He never says, oh, that's really hard to figure out. That's a really tough one. He always blames the people for not studying it enough, not reading it enough. Look at this. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those with him? And then he goes on to explain. Or Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stones that the builders rejected have become, has become the cornerstone? And look at this one. Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. In other words, you should have read this. You should have figured it out. You should have understood it. It's not the fault of the Bible. You need to pay more attention to it. And that, I think, again, affirms that if we have problems in understanding, the problem is not here. The problem is we need to work more at it. Hmm. Now, that might make you feel a little bit discouraged. Oh, too bad. <laughs> I've got to work more. But when you think about it, it should be encouraging because it means you can do it. Okay? This one is really interesting, Matthew 22, 29. They asked him a question about this uh, woman who had seven husbands in the resurrection. Who's, who's, whose wife will she be? And, and the first thing he says is, that's a really bad question. That is, the first thing he says is, you're wrong. <laughs> and they just asked him a question. He said, you're wrong. Uh, why? Because you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. Most of the New Testament epistles, moreover, are written 
to entire congregations. They aren't written to scholars or specialty uh, people who had specialty knowledge in the Bible. And remember, New Testament, the, the common language throughout the uh, Roman world was Greek. To some extent, Latin was coming into ascendancy. Many people didn't read Hebrew. But the Bible they had to start with was a Hebrew Bible, but then they had a Greek translation. And uh, so um, to those people, uh, Paul writes, and he writes in Greek, and he expects that they will understand. So look at this. The first, first Corinthians, to the church of God that is at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Galatians 1, to the churches of Galatia. Philippians 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. But he doesn't write to the overseers and deacons. He writes primarily to the saints. And uh, Colossians 4.16, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. In other words, read these letters aloud. There is an assumption that the Bible could be read aloud so that people would get it. They would understand it. It wasn't going to be beyond them. So, um, so we go back again just for review. Uh, um, in the Old Testament, the ordinary people were able to understand. It makes wise the simple. You teach them to their children. And then in the Old Testament also, um, or, or Jesus uh, in the New Testament expects that people will read and understand. He doesn't blame the Bible. And then these epistles go to all the churches, expecting that they'll understand. And then, see, New Testament authors expect that their Gentile audiences would familiarize themselves with a translation of the Old Testament. Look at how Paul expects that people would be able to hear the, under, the argument from the Old Testament and understand it. And these are people that didn't, they didn't know Hebrew, many of them. They couldn't read in the original language. They had a translation, just like we have an English translation. They had a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And that didn't, that, that didn't matter. Paul said, you know, read the translation, understand it. So, Romans 15.4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. He's talking about the whole Old Testament, and he's saying to the Romans that he's never met, Roman Christians, he's saying whatever was written was written for our instruction. It's good for us. And then 2 Timothy 3:16-17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So there's an expectation that people would use it profitably for teaching. And look at this one. This one, just, this one, I kind of smile whenever I read it. You're in the church at Corinth. And Paul writes you this letter. And if you didn't understand your Old Testament, this would be, total, this would be totally baffling to you. you. You would have no idea what's going on unless you knew your Old Testament history about the Exodus and the people in the Exodus going through the Red Sea and then having this cloud of God's uh, uh, pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. Uh, but look at this, how he's just assuming knowledge of the Old Testament for his whole audience. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. My goodness, look at all Old Testament history that he's... Is that, isn't that amazing? 
You, you guys, of course you understand this. I'm just reminding you. Now, these things took place as examples for us. I mean, that's the attitude he's got. It's, he's expecting they'll know their Bible. These things took place as examples for us. These things. Old Testament with the Exodus and the people in the wilderness and things. These took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. All of these Old Testament events written down, Paul says, for our instruction. He expects to be able to use them as examples and that people will get it. They will understand. So, um, so back to the, the, what's the main point here? The main point is the Bible frequently affirms its own clarity. Old Testament, New Testament assumes that people can understand it, and uh, assumes that people will take effort to try to work at understanding it. All right. Now, um, if we are going to need effort to understand it, if we're going to have to put in some work to understand it, realizing that it's able to be understood, then are there some moral and spiritual qualities that are needed in addition to just reading the words? Yes, there are. The ability to understand scripture rightly is more a moral and spiritual than an intellectual ability. Paul says the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Non-Christians looking at the Bible, some of them can understand some of it. There may be a few rare ones who can summarize some of the main teachings of the gospel, but basically they misunderstand it. They just they don't get it. It doesn't make sense. And uh, Paul says they're not they're not able to understand them. We need the Holy Spirit to um, give us new life and give our hearts understanding. He the the Jewish people who reject Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3:14 to 16, their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Testament, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. What, is, what does it mean, whenever Moses is read? What's that? That's the Old Testament. I mean, it may be Genesis to Deuteronomy, or they may be just kind of shorthand referring to the whole Old Testament. But he's saying, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed, and all of a sudden, the Bible starts to make sense. Probably that's been true in your own life. When you became a Christian, and then all of a sudden, the light started going on. You say, oh, yes, that's what it means. Okay, now, having said that, can we come to a definition of the clarity of Scripture? Here's what I propose as a definition. The clarity of Scripture means that the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help, and being willing to follow it. It's able to be understood. This is a quality of Scripture, not of the readers. It doesn't say that everybody's going to understand it perfectly, because people do misunderstand and they misinterpret. But it's not the fault of the Bible. And it does not imply that all will understand Scripture equally well. But it still is very, it's very encouraging because we say it's able to be understood. Now, I just can't help but use a golf analogy when I see Duff sitting out there in the audience. <clears throat> the game of golf is able to be played well. That doesn't mean that everybody plays it well. 
Doesn't mean that I play it very well. Duff's trying to help me figure it out. Um, but I know there are people who play it well. And so the question is, it's if, if, <laughs> if, if I'm missing the ball, it's not the club's fault. <laughs> it's not the fault of the course. I keep trying to think that could be the case. <laughs> but it's something I need to work on, on uh, getting better at it. But even a beginner can go out and have some fun at the game of golf. And uh, maybe that's not a perfect analogy, but even a new Christian can learn some things from the Bible, but then people can study more and, uh, and get better at it. Okay. Now, why then do people misunderstand? Why do you get people promoting false doctrines, false ideas, misinterpretations? Why? Why, why do people misunderstand? Jesus' fa disciples failed to understand all of his teaching. <clears throat> he said, uh, are you also without understanding? And then when they asked him about the parables, he said, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. For those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and hear and not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? So they, need, <clears throat> they needed Jesus to explain to them, give them insight into what he himself was teaching, um, um, and then he said, well, uh, the Holy Spirit has given them the ability to understand this. Um, but when he was on the road to Emmaus, after his resurrection, they said, how could this be that, that the Messiah, we thought he was the Messiah, but he died? And he said, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Messiah or the Christ to suffer and thus enter into his glory? So again, it was there, but they just didn't see it. There were times in the early church when Christians did not understand or agree on the teachings of the Old Testament or about the letters written by the apostles. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of gospel and believe. After there had been much debate, what is happening is the early church couldn't figure out if Gentiles, if, can they really come into the church and be the same? On this, can they really have all the benefits of the Jewish people who have the, all this heritage behind them? And there was some discussion about it. They were trying to figure it out. But they did figure it out eventually. It was just a growth in understanding. And, of course, the New Testament then gives us the result of their growth in understanding. Uh, even Peter, there was some process that he had to go through to realize that Gentiles had equal standing, and they didn't have to follow all the Jewish rules because Paul says, when Cephas, that's another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. He stood condemned. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. In other words, we're all one. We're all one body in Christ. We're going to eat together. That's fine. No distinction. But when they came from James, from Jerusalem, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And with him, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. And so... Um, so uh, the Jews were eating separately, saying, oh, we're more pure, we're special. Uh, sorry, you Gentiles, you can be believers, but you're in a second category, second class. And even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, and et cetera. And Paul goes on and corrects um, Peter's misunderstanding. So there was some, the, the disciples grew in their understanding. Peter grew in his understanding. So it doesn't mean that people understand instantly, but it does mean that people are able to understand. 
Well, now, how do you avoid mistakes? In order to avoid mistakes in interpreting scripture, many Bible teachers have developed principles of interpretation or guidelines to encourage growth in the skill of proper interpretation. And <clears throat> that's what I'm going to do next class, two weeks from now, how to interpret the Bible. I'm just going to lay out some broad, broad, general guidelines to kind of pe help people to, to interpret and understand. There are a couple of technical terms that people use to describe this. Hermeneutics is the study of correct methods of interpretation. And there are actually books and whole classes taught in hermeneutics. Uh, you know, theories of interpretation. How do you interpret? The Greek word hermeneo it means to interpret or to explain. And then exegesis is the process of interpreting a text of scripture. So sometimes you'll hear that word exegesis. It means actually doing the work, actually the, you're exegeting a text, you're looking at the details and explaining it and either teaching it to people or writing it down. And so we'll go through this in the next week, some principles of interpretation, uh, just kind of laying out mistakes that some people have made and then how we can avoid those mistakes. Now, so the Bible is clear, it's written so that we can understand it, that's the intention of it, but that doesn't mean that everybody interprets it perfectly. Uh, there's some process of, of growth in understanding. Now, is there any, does this make any difference? Is there any practical encouragement from this doctrine? Number one, the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture tells us that where there are areas of doctrinal or ethical disagreement, there are only two possible causes for those disagreements. Number one, it may be that we are seeking to make affirmations where scripture itself is silent. It may be we are seeking to make affirmations where scripture itself is silent. Um, oh, here's an example. Who wrote Hebrews? I really don't think anybody knows. It doesn't, the author is not named in Hebrews. I think the Bible is silent on that. People could argue forever about who wrote Hebrews, and they could have disagreements. Was it Barnabas? Was it Apollos? Was it Paul? Etc. I think they're trying to answer something that can't be answered. And some part of wisdom is knowing when you don't have enough information to get, a, get an answer for the question. So that could be. Maybe that people are trying to make affirmations where the Bible is silent. Well, maybe get a little hot water here. We'll come to this, oh, in a few months. But I think the debate over the age of the earth <clears throat> excuse me, also falls in this category. I really don't think, and I've worked on it for some time, that you can decide clearly from the Bible whether the earth is 10 or 20,000 years old or whether it's 4 billion years old. I just, I'm, and I know probably 100 of you come up to me afterward and say, well, aren't these days 24-hour days? I'm not sure if they're long periods of time or not. I think probably the Bible itself isn't telling us how old the earth is. And I'm sure of another one. When is Jesus coming back? <laughs> uh, if people start saying that, and I, you know, and I have, I have this book, 86 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1986, or something like that. <laughs> or maybe it was 88. It didn't. You know, um, that, that's trying to make affirmations where the Bible itself is silent. Okay, that'll lead to disagreement. Or it's possible that we have made mistakes in our interpretation of Scripture. Now, when I was in doctoral studies, my good friend John Hughes was a Presbyterian, and I was a Baptist, and we disagreed on baptism. Can you baptize infants or not? And we would argue about it. And then 
we wouldn't persuade each other. And then we would argue about it again, and we wouldn't persuade each other. And finally, we decided to stop arguing about it because it was hurting our friendship. Now, John and I both agreed that one of us was making a mistake in the interpretation of Scripture. <laughs> we both knew which one we thought it was. Uh, but we weren't blaming the Bible and saying, oh, the Bible teaches both things, or something like that. I mean, we, were, we weren't, weren't saying it teaches some things in one book and some things in another book. We weren't going to go that route because we thought it was consistent. And the question is, you know, which one was interpreting it rightly? Now, um, that point, number one, encourages me to write arguments trying to persuade other people about doctrinal questions. I've been involved in writing arguments, trying to persuade people about a certain theory of translating the Bible, and they're answering me back, and so that's what happens in these academic meetings and in papers and books, and all of that is healthy because we try to, try to persuade one another, and, and, we're, and we, I think that in this case or in the question of baptism or in the question of Oh, um, other areas that we might get involved in. Um, we, if people have made mistakes, there's a hope that the Bible is clear enough that eventually some people will be persuaded one way or another and change their minds. I do not think we're free to say that the teaching of the Bible on any subject is confusing or being or incapable of being understood correctly. And so I've been working on this question of what does the Bible say about poor nations and how can they change and become economically productive? I, I think the Bible says a great deal on this. Maybe it doesn't answer every question, but I don't think it's confusing or incapable of being understood correctly. I think it's able to be understood, and that's why I want to work at it. This truth should give great encouragement to all Christians to read their Bibles daily and with great eagerness. If, in fact, it's written for you, and the Old Testament was written for parents and moms and dads to explain the Bible to their children. That means that you should be able to read the Bible yourself and get a lot from it. Now, I read through the Bible every day. I just started back in Genesis, finished Revelation. I started back in Genesis again. And I find there are things that I wonder about. I was reading about those long ages of many 900, 800, 900 years that all of Adam's descendants lived in Genesis 4 just this morning and wondering, Oh Lord, why? You know, what what is why these long ages? I'm not sure. I'm just thinking about that and wondering, you know, just uh, there are questions that I but I read it seeking to understand and seeking to learn. And so all of us should do that. And so here, I'll give you a sign of a strong church. I I'm glad when people listen to the radio, they listen to James Dobson, they listen to Charles Swindoll, they listen to Charles Stanley, they listen to, I don't know who the other radio preacher, John Piper, James, John, James McDonald, whoever, Alistair Begg, etc. And I'm glad when you read books written by Christian authors and by Christian books. And I think that's fine. And you talk to each other about, what, oh, did you hear what, what Dr. Dobson said this week? Or did you hear, or did you hear what uh, Charles Stanley said in this sermon or, or uh, Alistair Begg or whatever? That's all fine. But you know what's even better in a church? is if people are saying, oh, let me just show you what I saw here in Proverbs 16 this week. See, that means that people are reading their Bible themselves and it's speaking to their hearts. And you can, the other things are good, the radio and the tapes 
and the sermons and the books, but you can do without those. You can't do without reading the Bible for yourself. Okay? And, <clears throat> and I think from as young as children begin to read, they can get something from the Bible. And then as they grow older, they'll get more. I think a seven or eight-year-old who is able to read can start reading in some of the gospel stories or some of the Old Testament stories and begin learning about God. I, I did some, How many of you, by, by age 10, you were reading the Bible quite a bit? Several of you, I think. And you were understanding quite a bit, right? I, no. <laughs> some. Okay. I mean, I remember reading as a very young child and understanding, now at the level it was appropriate for my age. And so God does that. And then as we go on in the Christian life, we understand more and more. and We put it more and more together. But I think from the very beginning, people can understand. And there's richness here that can be understand at some level by new believers and by children, and then at a deeper level by um, more mature believers. So, now, okay, one last thing. The, the question is, do I still have a job then? Uh, is there any role for professors or for scholars if, in fact, the Bible is able to be understood, if it's written so that ordinary people can understand it? I think there are four things that scholars can do. Uh, they can teach scripture clearly, communicating its content to others, because the Bible talks about the office of teacher. God has appointed in the church apostles, prophets, teachers. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. And so um, I think God has given me that role, to be a teacher and to help explain it to others. And that's what I think one thing that scholars do. Another thing is uh, scholars can explore new areas of understanding the teachings of Scripture, trying to put together things that people haven't understood before. And some Bible scholars have been working on, you know, what does the Bible say about end-of-life issues like euthanasia? And what does the Bible say about genetic engineering and, and things like that? And exploring that, I think that's a, that's a helpful thing. They can defend the teachings of the Bible against attacks by other scholars or those with specialized technical training. And uh, like that book by uh, Bishop Spong that I mentioned last week where he's attacking the Bible, there are some questions that he would raise or um, uh, the Da Vinci Code would raise where scholars could say, hey, we've got some knowledge of what he's talking about and he's wrong and here's the data. So there's a defense. And then um, being able to give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuking those who contradict it. And then they can supplement the study of scripture for the benefit of the church. I think a Bible atlas or a pictorial guide to the Holy Land is good. Why? Because you see maps, you see pictures. I remember talk, uh, speaking on Samson one time where he took the gates of the city of Gaza, he pulled them up by the, by, by the foundations and carried them um, to uh, Mount Hebron. I think it was Mount Hebron. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder how far he carried those city gates. And I looked, and it was about 30 miles. Oh. And I wonder why, you know, these men of the city were waiting to capture Samson, and he woke up, and he took the gates of the city and carried them off 30 miles. I said, why didn't they, why didn't they interfere with him? <laughs> well, you got some guy strong enough to pull the gates of the city up and carry it 30 miles. You're not going to get near that guy, I'll tell you. So a Bible atlas helped me. It gave me a little more vividness in understanding the background, but I want to be careful about that, um, that it doesn't overturn the plain meaning of Scripture. Okay, let's see. We have about... Let's put the house lights on, um, Trent, because we're about, about four or five minutes left, and I just want to see if you have some questions about that, and I had a couple of notes to myself here, too, for application. 
Oh, yeah. Okay, Donna. Thank you, Wayne. Do you recommend that children of 7 and 8 years old read what version? <laughs> <laughs> because they're going to grow in their knowledge of good English. They're going to increase their vocabulary. I read the King James Version, and so did every other child my age when I was a kid. And it was a lot harder than the English Standard Version. And you just kind of, you it's God's word. It's so it's really exciting for a child to read, I think. So, yeah. <laughs> Sandy. Laying aside the academic sparring that occurs, or the intellectual sparring that occurs in academic settings, like you'll be in mm -hmm. uh, this next week, um, what strikes me, and I'll acknowledge I may be psychologizing a bit, but what strikes me, for example, is that it would be that so much of this is a matter of the heart and mm -hmm. a matter of the will. Mm -hmm. And you've touched on that, but I just wanted you maybe to speak to it a little more. For example, I think it's much more comfortable to spend a lot of time thinking about and debating who the author of Hebrews mm -hmm. is rather than allowing the Holy Spirit of God to break our hearts with, for example, Hebrews 12:15 that talks about the danger of the yeah. root of bitterness, yeah. if in yeah. fact that is a part of our own issue. And so as someone long ago wisely said, it's not the portions of scripture I don't understand that bother me, it's the portions of scripture I do understand yeah, yeah, that yeah, bother me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A book of James says if you uh, if you read it and you don't do it, you go away and forget. It's James one. Uh, if if you're a hearer of the word, not a doer, you're like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what he was like. But if you if you uh, look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being a doer who acts, you'll be blessed in your doing. So yeah, read it with the willingness to obey. It's very important. Good, Sandy. Thanks. Okay, Rose. Um, this pertains uh, probably uh, to last week when we were um, in trying to interpret uh, where it looks like the Bible contradicted. Yep. Yep. Okay, so this is Genesis 8.21, yep. and it says, And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, yep. for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Yeah. Uh, well, are not the predictions that he is going to destroy the earth? Uh, I think, um, I don't think, that's, a, that's the kind of question that says, how does this verse fit with this verse? And by asking those is how we learn. And so it's really good to ask those and try to pursue them. And I think that God's not going to kill every living thing on the earth. That when Jesus comes back, I think uh, believers will be raised and live in resurrection bodies. We won't be killed. We'll, we'll live. And then others will pass uh, into judgment. But um, no, I don't think God's going to destroy every living animal and, and human being again. Um, the earth is not going to be destroyed by fire? I don't. Well, yeah. Um, not every living thing on it. It's that, Rose, to be honest, that question of uh, Second Peter and Jude about uh, the, the elements on it will be destroyed by fire. There are some things on the earth that are going to be burned up with fire, but some things are going to pass through that fire, and I don't know quite how to work out what's going to be destroyed and what won't. But I don't think all of it. I think there's a judgment that comes on evil, but not on what is good. Scottsdale Bible Church, I think, will come through it just fine. <laughs> so... A hard question, though, but a good one. 
What else over here? Yeah. I just had a statement. You know, I have a lot of friends in the Catholic Church, and they look back to the Roman Catholic Church, and a lot of them not only going to priests for confession, but also going to them to interpret the Bible. Yep. They, they yep. really have no connection yep. with the Bible whatsoever. And I think what you taught today is, is something I can take to them to talk about. Listen, you can interpret the Bible based on your own reasons. Yeah, go ahead and restate the first part of it when you weren't on the tape. Uh, that I have a lot of friends in the Catholic Church, and I'm looking back at the Roman Catholic Church and the the fact that you have to go to priests for confession, that you have mm -hmm. to go to them to interpret the Bible or okay. to even read the Bible. Yeah. So this is what's your name? Terry. Terry. I want to just say respectfully, with regard to Roman Catholics, and uh, some of you may have come from Roman Catholic background, and there are many things in which we would agree with Roman Catholics. But I have in the last few weeks, when we get to the doctrine of Scripture, there are a few that we differ significantly, and here's where we would differ with Roman Catholics. And Martin Luther did. Uh, in the Reformation, starting 1517 and then onward, he spent years of his life translating the Bible into German because of this doctrine. He was convinced, don't leave it in Greek or Latin, which the scholars used at that time, translate it in German. Why? Because it's given so ordinary people can understand it. And historians of that time will say that when it was announced that the Bible was going to be read verse after verse in German from the pulpit of a city in Germany or in Switzerland in the years in the 1520s or so after these translations were coming out, it caused more excitement than the news that Columbus had discovered a new world in 1492. People would flock to the church and they would jam, to hear, jam into the church to hear the Bible in their own language because it had been kept from them by Latin translations only, and all they did was speak German. And so this Protestant doctrine of the clarity of Scripture so that all believers can understand it is something that is a strength of, the, of, of, of Protestant churches and evangelical churches. That affects my view of church government. In the end, we have elders in this church, and we have pastors, and they're chosen by the church, but in the end, the ultimate governing authority of, of the church is you, or if you're a member, it's you, that is, with the rest with the congregation. And it seems to me the long-term protection from churches going into liberalism is that the final levers of control have to be with the broad base of God's people generally, who are reading God's word and praying and walking with him. You can fool the scholars first, you fool the pastors second, and you fool the lay people who are reading their Bible <laughs> walking with the Lord last. They don't know maybe all the technical answers, but they know something's wrong with this doctrine, and uh, and it's really hard to lead them astray. So that affects this doctrine affects my view of church government. It affects my view of the Bible. Get the Bible in people's hands; they'll understand it, and it helps me understand why. In 1984, Margaret and I went to China. We we met with. Uh, I got to speak in a church. Maybe this many people. They'd probably not seen a Westerner in 40 years. I just affirmed seven basic doctrines of the Bible. The Bible is true. God created the world. Jesus, we're all sinners. Jesus has died for our sins. He's coming back as Savior uh, in a second coming. There were just some seven. And there were people weeping because they had never had any anybody teach them that from the outside. But they'd been reading their Bibles, and they came to the same conclusions because the Bible taught them. And around the world and throughout history, in the main teachings of the Christian faith, the Bible has been clear, and God's people have understood and they've agreed. And that, that's a wonderful, oh, it's a wonderful thing. They would just have tears down their eyes because they would hear somebody from another culture in another uh, area affirming what they knew to be true in the Bible. Okay. What else? What else? What else? Yeah. Uh, Gene. Uh, you've already commented on it, I think, in the Deuteronomy passage, but 
Therefore, for a society to make sure this is happening, it begins in the home. Yep. So that implies a discipline that's probably fairly daily, right? Yep. Reading with the children. Yep. And it says something about That'd how the youth program should work with the church. Yep. And it may say Bible, 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 Bible. Memorize Bible. Awana is great. Has Bible memory in it. Navigator's Bible memory system is great. Anything that encourages scripture memory in kids, they can, they'll they understand. It'll be in, in their minds for the rest of their lives. Good. And it may say something about uh, schooling. Do you have any strong feelings about, uh, you know, Christian schooling? And if so, how far? Different topic. College? Can't treat it here. <laughs> I like I like Christian schools. But Okay. I just uh, want to say one other thing. This doctrine has had a profound effect on my life, and it's encouraged me to study things that I can't figure out in the Bible, thinking, oh, God wants us to understand this. Let's work at it. Okay? It has also affected my life in that I think it has influenced my whole approach toward teaching. Whenever I teach, I think there's something in my attitude that says, hey, you can understand this. And that, that really affects my whole approach toward teaching, as opposed to what you know, some professors in university kind of give the idea, this is an incredibly complex subject, and you'll never really understand it the way I do, but I'll give you a little bit of tidbit here and there. That, uh, and and I, I, I even think that, that that kind of mindset can enter into theological training sometimes of a professor projecting the idea of, you never can un- know as much as I know, but... You probably shouldn't even try, but I'll kind of condescend to give you a little bit of information. Uh, that that isn't, and and I don't want to write so that so it's so obscure that only a tiny, specialty group of scholars can understand. I want to write so ordinary people can understand. So my teaching and my writing has been affected by this. If the Bible is written for people to understand it, then I want to write for people to be able to understand it. So I, so this I say this is a this is a profound. Um, I want to try to make things clear. So it has a profound impact, on, I think, on the whole of my life. I'm really beyond time. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I shouldn't violate the time. I should get people out of here. So see you uh, next week here with a guest teacher, and then two weeks, how to interpret the Bible. Okay. <laughs>